Cherry Hill Volvo, we have absolutely incredible offers and a plethora of both new and certified Volvos from which to choose. We are eager to offer amazingly competitive prices, plus an additional $1,000 Costco discount on all new Cherry Hill Volvos. When leasing or purchasing a new or certified Cherry Hill Volvo, you become a valued part of our team. Join Cherry Hill Volvo for the pricing and attention you deserve. I am Judith Krepnick, president of Cherry Hill Volvo. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. WPHD, WPHD, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. Always live on the free Odyssey app. The revolution will be broadcast. This is the next generation of talk. Now, this is the drive at 5. 30 minutes of non-stop talk with Rich Zioli. So if you're tired of comparing Trump to Hitler, are there other evil despots you could use? Of course there are. We've got a list for you. Uh, Sports Illustrated is done. Was it because of the transgender issue? And Tim Scott is going to endorse Donald Trump tonight for president of the United States of America. He just teased that big announcement. He'll be doing it tonight at a Trump rally. Welcome back to the show. Glad you're here. It is a snowy Friday, 855-839-1210 on Twitter, at Rich Zioli. But let me welcome to the show his triumphant return. We're so happy to have him back. The author of Lies My Liberal Teacher Told Me, which is coming out very, very soon and available for pre-order today, Dr. Wilfred Riley. Hello, Doc. How are you? Doing well. Good to be back on the show. Good to have you back. I know you're a busy guy. You're in high demand, and there's a lot going on. Uh, and I know you've been busy reading the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition, so I can't blame you for not being available. Yeah, well, I actually did look at the last uh, Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition, and it's not hard to see why the magazine went bankrupt. I mean, that was actually part of uh, what caused the collapse, I think. There were there were two things. The, the first was just the brand model. So, like, the last swimsuit edition featured a guy or a trans woman, quote-unquote, on the cover, Kim Petras. The other model that they chose to go with is a, quote-unquote, plus-size model who actually is a very attractive woman, but who weighs about 240 pounds. And they they were able to survive that, but then they got in trouble for this AI scandal where it turned out they weren't writing their articles. They were having kind of the junior reporters go to chat GPT and say, you know, baseball player, inspiring story, give me two pages. And this, this was apparently about half their content. And I, I think people, there, there just wasn't a base for it anymore. Sports Center is having the same problem, but Sports Illustrated, as I understand, is done. They fired the entire staff. Yeah, they they fired the entire staff. The uh, people that own the brand have taken the brand back. Um, they said they're going to relaunch it and, and try to get back to their to their to their base. I, I don't know if it's even possible at this point. But look, I mean, putting a a transgender woman, a biological male, uh, on the cover of a swimsuit edition bothers me because you know there were twenty eight women they chose for that twenty eight individuals, one of whom was a biological male. So that means that mm-hmm. of the four that were on the cover. 
24 women were cast aside as not cover worthy. And once again, a biological dude took the place of a woman. And and it frustrates me that that's okay in our society. Yeah, I mean, I I think on the one hand, it's offensive. Sure. Like if so, there are levels to this. Like if I were a woman and if I were a swimsuit model, and I were beaten out by a guy for a modeling gig. I'd be uh, more than a little bit offended by that, I think. That's part of it. Part two, though, I, I think is just the level of virtue signaling that became really common for a while. So, like, this isn't the first guy to win, the first male to win woman of the year. I mean, like, the classic example was Caitlyn Jenner, who went to the ESPYs and was voted, you know, at a major award show, the best and most heroic woman in the country. And that became like a Chappelle show joke. Where, I mean, you know, Big Dave got up on stage and was like, you know, there are a thousand women in this room, but there's there's some guy out there that's a better woman than any of you. <laughs> and that, <laughs> it was a thing. It went on went on for a couple of years. We've seen three or four of them. I, I never, I try never to lie or misquote, so I forget who the one was that won last year, but we saw this Miss Universe or something like that a couple months ago. So this is not a novel thing. But again, the like last sentence, but there's that, there's that discrepancy between what people will clap like seals and say in public and what people will actually like enough to pay for. And this is what we're seeing with a lot of brands. I mean, it's what Bud Light dealt with. It's what Target dealt with. It's what a number of brands have dealt with on the left side of the fence where they moved away from, you know, actual sexuality on the women's mag side and so on. And here with Sports Illustrated, I mean, people didn't want robots writing articles about gay athletes. It turns out they just wanted to see summaries of the game and, you know, who's the new phenom and so on. And, if the magazine can relaunch that and can pitch to, you know, the mostly male sports viewing audience, that's that's a big audience. Like you should be able to get money out of out of that pool. But let's see if they do. Now, I saw, you know, Unilever came out recently and said, all right, all this emphasis for companies on on ESG scores and, 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 and social purposes and everything, that can't be our focus anymore. Our focus has to actually be making money. I mean, I know that's shocking for a CEO to say in this day and age. Do you think companies are finally catching on that the ESG stuff, the DEI stuff is just it's just not it's not a profitable way to go for them? Well, I remember I was once listening to uh, what's a Charlemagne the God for the Breakfast Club, and it was him and his old rival Ed Lover, and they were interviewing some guy from Nike, and they they kept asking the Nike guy, "What's your purpose? Is it to do outreach in inner city communities? Is it to to grow the brand globally and develop kind of the the, the world sense of art and athletics?" And the Nike guy was like, "No, you idiots! It's to sell shoes." And I remember laughing out loud when the guy said that. It was just this, like, average-sized Caucasian guy, brown hair and a pinstripe. You know, he was just sort of saying what he did. Like, we don't hate anybody, but our business is to move athletic shoes. Yeah. So, no, like, you ha- when, you, when you're in the business world where we've both been, I mean, you have to have a core model. So if you sell shoes, everything has to get back to how many shoes do you sell. Like, the purpose of marketing is to make your shoe look look effective, look cool, get it out there on beside the subway trains and so on. The purpose of sales, I mean, people are calling up footlockers and they're closing deals for so many boxes of shoes. The purpose of IT, I mean, are your ads visible on Amazon, so on down the line. And I think for about 10 years, we got kind of fat and happy. I mean, the early Trump years were, were good. You know, I'm on the right, but the later Obama years weren't bad. We had some spare money to spend on, on all this other stuff. So we got into, I mean, ESG is environmental social governance. So companies started scoring themselves about 5% of what influences their stock price, about 5% of what the index funds were doing. 
was how many trees the brand was planting and this kind of thing. Like Greta Thunberg was giving corporate advice, you know, was being flown out on jets to do this. And at a certain point, that just that just doesn't matter. Like you, you can get rid of everything DEI, SEL, ESG. It's not going to affect your bottom line at all. And people are realizing that. Let me ask you another question, Dr. Wilford Riley. We, we often hear Trump compared to Hitler quite a bit, and uh, it's, it's kind of cliche. I mean, there's an old South Park joke, I think, where you know everything comes back to Hitler, basically. Uh, so the Daily Wire has a piece today. If you're tired of comparing your political enemies to Hitler, here are four more evil despots worth mentioning, part two. And they, they bring up some other people in there. Um, so I'd like to ask you, I mean, if, if, if you would yeah. like to give people some other names uh, that they could, they could use, in the course of their political discourse to, to bring up tyrants. I always go to Mussolini, my people, Italian. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm a little partial to that one. Uh, got any other suggestions for us? Well, yeah, you actually you actually stole the obvious one from me. I mean, if you're going to compare... So, first of all, comparing people to Hitler is the ultimate midwit move. Because it sort of means, like, people used to say the Bible is the one positive book. Like, for a lot of people online, Mein Kampf is the one negative book. So someone will say something like, in war, I would defeat my enemies. And someone will immediately chime in and say, sounds like something Hitler would have said. <laughs> and, you know, the obvious context is it's also something your Ramesses would have said, you idiot, or Stonewall Jackson, or any other impressive man throughout history, Malcolm X. Because it's something everyone thinks in competition. So, I mean, Hitler is kind of the ultimate midwit evil guy. Like, there's sort of a what would Hitler do vibe when people criticize bad leaders. So, in reality, yeah, Trump's a lot more like Mussolini as a political scientist, maybe Ceausescu, uh, Viktor Orban, although he's not really an evil guy. But there's a whole tradition of kind of strong man European <laughs> leaders standing up, pounding the podium, you know, the blood, the soil, the land. Uh, a lot of them weren't, weren't Nazis or close. And that Trump tradition, like the, the proud guy with the two long ties shouting. Hitler, no similarity to Trump. How come the left never brings up Pol Pot? I mean, that dude, you know, he was a pretty evil guy, Pol Pot. And, uh, and I feel like in, in, in history, he, he kind of gets cast aside. Also, Stalin. I mean, Stalin killed a lot of people with the purges and the, and the famines and whatnot. But maybe that's because he was on the side of the, of the commies. Well, yeah, the left never brings up communist dictators at all. I mean, like, never. I, I don't know if we're... Yeah, but like if we're, we're going to do like a dictator off, I mean, yeah, you've got Lenin, you got Stalin, you got Mao, you got Pol Pot. I mean, you have to you have to realize, and I'm sure most of your audience does, that every communist leader was a dictator. Like no one no one voted in any of these guys. There was no election that Ho Chi Minh won. That's another one. <laughs> so I mean, yes, like if you want to go through a list of the most murderous dictators in history, the most murderous dictator in history was Chairman Mao. Simply because, I mean, China is the country, like the East is the one region of the world that traditionally has kind of outpowered the West. I mean, they're the famous old line, there are a billion Chinese. So when Mao's Great Leap Forward killed 10% of the population, that was something like 50 million people. So no one, even Hitler, is close to the Chairman Mao numbers. But yeah, no one talks about Mao, no one Stalin. No one talks about Pol Pot. I mean, there hasn't been a movie, you know, a cinematic treatment of that since The Killing Fields. And, yeah, the reason for that is that it's a lot more awkward to talk about Marxist dictatorship than fascist dictatorship. Because a lot of people today still identify as Marxist. I mean, unless you're on Stormfront or something like that, no one identifies as a fascist. 
Right, right. And, and, and yet, even though their, their ideas are not that far off, I mean, about, you know, one powerful government that controls everything. And I mean, the, the ideas are not that far off in terms of authoritarianism, yet somehow everybody assumes that Hitler's on the right, Mussolini's on the right, and these other guys are on the left. I mean, I just remember the political spectrum. I mean, obviously, you're a political science professor, but mm-hmm. I remember learning about the political spectrum theory and how eventually the extremes kind of come together. You know, the, the line doubles over and connects next because as far you go extreme on either side eventually you're operating in the same way you've got eco-terrorists and, and you've got you, you know the uh, the crazy militia guy blowing up a building i mean you're not that far off once you connect the crazies yeah like if you, if you look at the uh, standard breakdown like the percentage of the population that can be forced to pay taxes or something like that or who has the ultimate order giving power is it you know the guy at top or the politburo I mean, yeah, you actually do get sort of an eerie horseshoe where, like, the most right-wing government would be sort of a good king or an emperor, and the most left-wing government would be a communist or a fascistic society. And there's a lot of wordplay that goes into that, where the idea is that the communist or even the fascistic society would actually be led by the people. But in practice, like, the people always early on in the revolution pick a leader and the leader stays in power and no one votes for him. This is actually, like, the problem with communism, by the way, as you probably know. Like, communists will tell you that pure communism has never been achieved. So, like, the idea of communism is that the second rank in society, that's the Chinese term, like the students, the union men, the soldiers, will defeat the first rank in society, which would be, I guess, the nobles, the businessmen, the media guys. And so the second rank will then take power. And what they're supposed to do is then divide everything up equally among everybody. But what they actually do is just keep it. So that's that's the problem. Like once the once the rebel army wins, how do you then get the rebel general to give you 20 percent of everything he has? And that's never been successful ever. Not once. Right. Yeah, Yeah, it never will be. And this is why I think that the, the Democrats have a problem here with their campaign messaging, which is that Trump is going to be a dictator in his second term. I got, can you name me a dictator who ever left office ever and then said, I want to come back and then I'll be a dictator? I mean, if you're going to be a dictator, be a dictator. Like, dictators dictate. They don't leave. Trump didn't. I mean, he left the White House. That's a very low energy dictator, in my opinion. <laughs> overrated dictatorial non-dictatorial <laughs> behavior the, the funny thing about just small dictator energy the funny thing about trump actually is that if you really want to critique trump from like that business or military right he wasn't dictatorial enough and like you know listeners will probably hear that like what the hell but like in reality trump didn't do what you know big bill clinton did what eisenhower did with a lot of people who had state what a lot of people who had state governmental or military experience did which was sort of every couple of months just govern for two weeks with a pen and a phone and just do stuff so like the border wall trump kept trying to work out deals with these rhino republicans in congress and so like bluntly no wall ever got built Trump built 737 miles of wall, which isn't bad, but like 400 miles were just repairing what was already there. The border's like 3,000 miles long. So the idea that Trump came in and he used this massive, aggressive power to get things done, no. What actually happened was that Trump, who's used to being this deal-making businessman, went into this bureaucratic environment where people were just lying to him. Like, I read the brief recently. A friend got it to me on what was done to Trump during the Syrian campaign. And people were just telling Trump we didn't have soldiers in the country anymore. We did. We had hundreds of them. 
But he very often was just completely baffled by what was going on. The question with Trump coming back, actually, is will he be any better? Like, as opposed to hiring relatives and, you know, heavy hitters from the business world and people he thinks are funny, like, will he surround himself with people that are actually capable of getting some of the stuff that he wants to do done? That's, that's a big question for Trump, and that's why so many people favored DeSantis or even Haley at the start of the primaries. I think that one of the mistakes he made, and I think he admits it now, was he, he hired a lot of the Republican establishment people. You know, all of a sudden they said, all right, we have to come in and help you and guide you. And to that point, the the, the campaign that he ran was so antithetical to that that these people got in there and it was they were never able to work together. And I think he's learned that lesson. I'm like, I'm not going to go and tap the, the, the Mitch McConnell staffers this time around. I'm not going to get Paul Ryan's people in here that part of it i think he, he's learned but yeah you know when you you think about authoritarianism and you hear about the the left's cries and, and the whining about this and clay travis made a great point about this yesterday you know as, as biden's whining about authoritarianism i mean literally his department of justice is trying to lock up his chief political opponent i mean you know you you, you cannot make this up in authoritarian countries they use their law enforcement purposes correct me if i'm wrong professor wilford riley but what i learned about the definition of police state in my political science classes was it's not you know cops on horseback it's not tear gas at riots it's when the government uses its law enforcement powers for for politics to 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 affect political change uh whether it's positive or it's negative they're using their power for politics not for keeping the people safe and it seems like we got a whole lot of that going on right now yeah i mean so this is Almost everyone I know who is has any rank at all on the left has read a guy named Saul Alinsky, who wrote a series of books like Rules for Radicals, Political Competition, that were kind of like Machiavelli redone for the early modern world, like the 1970s. And one of Saul Alinsky's rules was always scream frantically about what you're doing, if that makes sense. So, like, if you are an atheist party girl who's going to engage in totally ruthless political competition and doesn't believe in much of anything, keep telling other people they have no empathy. And that's why they won't let in like an unlimited number of young fighting men through the border, for example. So like the, the whole you are unempathic, you're a killer. That's like a constant liberal argument. This is the same thing. Like, so Trump said a lot of stuff that sounded overly cocky and that sounded like he might do things most Americans would disapprove of. So the liberal frame on Trump became he's a dictator. The reality is that because they could then argue they were fighting a dictator, the equally ruthless people on the Democratic side of the aisle did a whole bunch of stuff that's dictatorial or borders on it. So, yeah, I mean, like the the opposition party candidates facing 91 felony charges right now. And, like, so he did some of that stuff. Like, he had those documents in his bathroom, you know. But the large majority of this stuff, speaking as a pretty competent lawyer, seems like total crap. I mean, like, the New York case is the extension of a state campaign finance misdemeanor past the statute of limitations because they're different federal and state statutes of limitations kind of into the federal arena. And the initial source of that was that Trump allegedly paid a porn star to say they didn't have sex. Like, these are the kind of charges that Trump is facing. Like, in Atlanta, Fannie Willis, who allegedly used to date Gucci Mane, by the way, but Fannie Willis paid her boyfriend, her married boyfriend, to investigate Donald Trump and then bring a whole series of charges against him. 
And there's now kind of a secondary investigation into Willis and whether these charges are legitimate. Like, this is the kind of stuff that's being raised against Trump. And yeah, it's, it's impossible to deny that this is political. The question is, will it work? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that's it. That's it. That's exactly right. Like, it, it, it's so political. It's so glaringly obvious. Um, the whole thing with Fannie Willis is hysterical. I mean, you know, th- th- this guy, yeah. this cat's making 650000 a year, but he has no business being a prosecutor on a case to get to bring down the former president of the United States. He was like a municipal judge dealing with parking tickets. And uh, that's that that's an amazing part of this as well. And then, of course, in the federal level, you have you, you have Jack Smith, who is the special prosecutor who's relentlessly going after Trump and this the, the the ballots now in Colorado of course saying he can't be on the ballot I mean when you've got guys like David Axelrod coming out and saying as a Democrat this is bad you all you're doing is is helping Trump and making people upset that you're taking away choices you have to stop doing this when you've got Jamie Dimon coming out there and saying hey stop calling Trump supporters you know Nazis and everything else I mean at some point you, you gotta you gotta wonder if if they're looking at their message and thinking to themselves, man, we just have nothing here because they can't really talk about Biden's economy. They don't want to talk about the state of the world because it's a mess. The border's a freaking wide open disaster. So, you know, I, I mean, from a messaging perspective, they are just in deep trouble, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, so the, the problem with this election and, you know, I like Trump better than Biden, but the problem with this election is the two men running. Like, I, I personally think that almost any competent candidate in a general election could beat either one of these two candidates. So this is the issue. Biden Biden is the worst candidate. But like every time I look at a poll that's like DeSantis or Haley or anyone like this versus Biden in the general, it's like them up six. Even Trump is up three. Uh, it's the same thing in reverse, though. Like there have been polls that are created where you have general Democrat or someone like uh, the boy Gavin Newsom from California Newsom Harris running against Trump, and it's the Democrats by two. So I think that both parties are kind of prepared for one of those World War One level slugfests where you take these two mildly corrupt 80-year-old men and you run them against each other and you see who survives, maybe literally. Like, so that's that's the situation. And for the Biden team, I think they think Biden's been bit worse by the bug of life than Trump has. I don't think they want to focus on Biden at all. Like, you can't. And it's kind of sad. Like, Biden used to be a witty, funny guy. Like, he wrote the 94 crime bill. and You can still see him on video defending against the Black Caucus and so on. But Biden right now probably dealing with at least low-level dementia. He can't really talk. He's got a busy schedule. He's 80-something. So they don't want to put him in the spotlight. They don't want him to debate Donald Trump. So they want the focus to be on Trump's mistakes and peccadilloes. I think that's a good way to put it. They want the focus to be on bad things Trump has done until the election. And so I I wouldn't be surprised to see more charges. I wouldn't be surprised to see unexpected court dates in these four states. Like just a a lot of games being played. Yeah, I, I I agree with 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 what they're going to do. No question about it. Every time I see these polls though about the other candidates, I, I I just remind people though that they haven't been on the national stage yet. And once the Democrat war machine aims at them, those numbers may change. I mean, Haley and DeSantis have not yet been on the national stage, so they 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 right now people might say, yeah, I, I'd choose them until the Democrat Party does what it does and attacks. You know, Nikki Haley's wanted to take away abortion rights, and Ron DeSantis is also being Hitler. You know. I mean, they, they, they'll do all those things to them and probably bring down their poll numbers, too. But from the Democrat perspective, we've got enough people chattering about potentially now having to change the candidate. 
change Joe Biden out of the race. Yeah. I, I mean, is that even possible? Can it? Could it? I, I know from a from a perspective of up, look up until you nominate a candidate at the convention, you you really can. I mean, it, it, it seems like they are flirting names. You mentioned Gavin Newsom. You know, there's a story about Michelle Obama. She's saying all these things on podcasts. I mean, you know, w- would you be surprised if it, if they were to do a switcheroo no. here? No, I mean, like, so I, I was just pretty harsh on Trump there. But I mean, let's be real about this with Biden. Like, it's an entirely different level with Biden. Biden is, you might correct me, what, 83? You know, he's, yeah, he's like not. 183, yeah, he's, something, yeah. Yeah, he was around. He used to play football against the Iroquois in high school. You know, like, but I mean, he's he's just not <laughs> the guy's. He hasn't been alive for several years. I mean, so it's just. And again, I used to as as kind of like a right leaning Democrat at the time. You know, I read the crime. I used to like Joe Biden. Joe Biden is a guy who ran for president. This is one of the problems with the whole like it's my turn idea in politics. By the way, um, there are times like maybe with DeSantis when this makes some sense. But there also are times where you have these geriatrics like Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden saying, no, I'm up next. When you have a whole roster of younger candidates, like, for example, Newsom. But, I mean, Joe Biden was a guy who ran for president multiple times in the 90s. He was derailed by silly stuff like plagiarism scandals. Now he's back. He's 85. He's got dementia. I mean, from my perception. So what do you do with him? No, I wouldn't be surprised to see a switcheroo. The question is who? The, the thing that makes that difficult is Kamala Harris, actually, if you're talking about, like, strategic party politics from things I've heard from buddies on the Dem oh, side. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah, because you've got, like, a strong black woman, quote-unquote, on the ticket. Biden picked her because he wanted a black female president. If you ever step down, he said all this at, like, NCA, AACP prayer breakfast. So if he actually steps down and then he's like, okay, Gavin, you're up next, how do you justify that? Like, how do you not let Harris pick her VP? And who who would that be? You know, so that's that's the problem. And she's even worse than Biden. I mean, she's even more unpopular yeah. than he is. But yeah, to your point, I mean, how, how does how does the Democrat Party shove aside the first black female vice president for another white dude? And which, by the way, they did in the 2020 primary. I mean, they shoved Kamala Harris aside for an old white dude. So, I mean, I wouldn't put anything past them. But that's the only reason why the, I think the Michelle Obama thing has legs, because obviously she's also a, a, a black woman. So they could, you know, maybe uh, satisfy people in that sense. But yeah, no, I think if it wasn't Kamala Harris's the VP, I think Biden would have been gone. And then I guess the other question then becomes, you know, do they use the leverage? Do they use Hunter as leverage against him? You know, give your son a pardon, make all this go away. And then, of course, you can't actually, uh, you know, run for reelection if you've just pardoned your son. You got to put your family first, blah, blah, blah. Maybe. I mean, I think one of the reasons we're seeing so much about the Hunter Biden thing. Well, one of the reasons we're seeing so much Democratic corruption is that it's unavoidable. So, I mean, a general rule would be like, you know, black on white crime gets about a fifth as much uh, airtime as white on black crime. It's the same thing here. Like Democratic corruption gets about a fourth as much airtime as Republican corruption. But with stuff like Fannie Willis, when she's like sleeping with one of the judges and prosecutors involved in a case that involves the president, like you can't really totally downplay it. Same thing with Hunter Biden. But one of the reasons the Hunter Biden case is getting so much coverage, I think, is that it's now okay to make fun of Joe Biden. You see the same thing with kind of late night TV like Jimmy Kimmel, where for the entire Obama administration and the first year and a half of the Joe Biden administration, there was actually a moratorium on criticizing the president that people in Hollywood have talked about. Uh, Why did that end? I think one reason is that so many people see that Biden's not functional. 
not only can you not ignore that, it also means that they want someone to replace him. So, yeah, the Hunter thing would be one strategy to get him out of there. But, again, you have to, the, the chess move would be how do you get Joe Biden out in a way that also gets Kamala Harris out? That's what you'd have to do if you want an effective ticket that's like Gavin Newsom and Michelle Obama as VP. Yeah, well, listen, very well said. All right, my friend, always a pleasure. Great having you back on the show, Dr. Wolford Riley. The book, Lies My Liberal Teacher Told Me, it's available for pre-order now, so pre-order it. We're going to do a big book event together when it's ready to come out. Uh, have a great weekend, my friend. Thank you. You too. Good talking to you again. Bye. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. The Zioli Show on your schedule from Talk Radio 1210 WPHT in the free Odyssey app. A beachfront home in Naples with panoramic views of the Gulf asks for $39.5 million. A South Florida home with a coveted waterfront location has come up for sale for $40 million. That's strange because Mar-a-Lago was valued at what? $9 million or something, according to the government, as they went after Donald Trump. Welcome back to the show. Glad you are here today. It is a snow day, and what a show we're having today, huh? Thanks for being here. Lots to chat about. You know, part of the reason I always say I love uh, talk radio is we can go in-depth on topics. We can go in-depth, and no doubt about that. Uh, will Tucker become Donald Trump's VP? I don't know. New York Post is a story today. Tucker Carlson is certainly a contender to be Trump's VP pick, according to Donald Trump Jr. That clearly would be on the table, Don Jr. said when asked on Newsmax Thursday if the former president was serious about Tucker Carlson as a possible vice president if he wins the 2024 election. I mean, they're very friendly. I think they agree in virtually all of these things. He told Rob Finnerty on Wake Up America. They certainly uh, agree on stopping the never-ending wars. And so I would love that to happen. That would certainly be a contender. I like Tucker a lot. I guess I would I would say, you know, I think he's got a lot of great common sense. That's what Trump had said about Tucker in the past. Uh, I don't see it. I, I just don't see it happening. I'm not saying it won't. I'm just saying I don't I don't see it happening. I don't see it. That is the top story of the day today brought to you by our buddy, Dr. Mike Venaria, VenariaDental.com. 
for all your beautiful dental care needs and you do uh, absolutely need to see him for a great great smile now biden is again ignoring the united states supreme court once again and he's bribing people by giving them out your money as he cancels another seventy four thousand dollars in student loans on friday the biden administration announced they were canceling the loans of another seventy four thousand student loan borrowers hiking the total number of people who've gotten their debt canceled to over 3.7 million americans Hey, a lot of those people are in Pennsylvania. And you know how that works, right? It's like, hey, how you doing? You want a, uh, you want some money? How about a little money to pay off your student loans? Yeah, no problem. Just don't forget who gave it to you. That will be us. That will be us, the Democrats. That's right. The Biden administration has been ignoring the United States Supreme Court, which struck down Biden's student loan relief plan last June because it had not been approved by Congress. The Supreme Court's 6-3 decision resulted from the six conservative justices voting to strike down the plan while the three leftist justices opposed them. The Biden administration incited the 2003 Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act to buttress its argument in favor of the student loans. As it stated, the loans were permitted in case of a national emergency. But Chief Justice John Roberts said the 2003 act was clearly before a department secretary and can you and was what was. Excuse me, let me rephrase that. Chief Justice John Roberts said the 2003 act was clearly before a department secretary can unilaterally alter large sections of the American economy. And that is only something Congress can do. A cabinet secretary cannot. Joe Biden said, my administration was able to deliver relief to these borrowers and millions more because of the fixes we made to the broken student loan programs. And he'd say to me, Joey... My dad always said to me, Joey, when, when, when you got student loan debt, you got to make sure the taxpayers pay them off. In the wake of the Supreme Court's decision on our student debt relief plan, we are continuing to pursue an alternative path to deliver student debt relief to as many borrowers as possible, as quickly as possible. And a lot of those people live in Pennsylvania, swing state of Pennsylvania, because, of course, as you know, um, you got to win PA. All roads run through Pennsylvania, no doubt about it. So he's doing that. Meanwhile, state schools could give thousands of students full rides if they disclose their DEI departments. Huh? I'm sorry, if they close their DEI departments. This is the the actual cost of of the DEI departments. Spreading angry ideology is good work if you can get it. Turns out... At public universities nationwide, diversity, equity, and inclusion officials make huge sums while spending even more pushing division and discrimination on students and faculty alike. They claim they're promoting disenfranchised groups, but they're wasting money that would be better spent given a broader range of students a high-quality education. See, in other words, instead of Joe Biden having to pay off all the student loan debt, and instead of people like America's mother-in-law screaming about how college should be free, you actually could give students a free ride if you just killed DEI. So there's a new report out, and the author of that report, uh, the report was reviewed by uh, Liesl Crocker at the New York Post. And the report focused on red and purple states since they are most likely to have the political will to reform higher education. While DEI bureaucracies die, diversity, inclusion, and equity, are generally largest at universities in blue states, like $25 million the University of California Berkeley spends on 400 DEI staff members, there's no chance that people like Gavin the Hair Newsom are going to roll that back. No chance whatsoever. Blue states would probably allocate even more money towards DEI, not less. 
DEI spending at state schools is in the hundreds of millions of dollars a year. A year. Now think about that. The left screams college should be free because they want the indoctrination camp. Uh, The left screams that nobody should have student loan debt. The left screams that everybody who has student loan debt should get those student loans canceled. Meanwhile, hundreds of millions of dollars a year are being spent at state schools, DEI. It's conceivable that America's roughly 1,600 public colleges and universities are spending more than a billion dollars a year on DEI. Each institution would have to spend just $625,000 a year. Now, like the University of Alabama drops $2 million a year on salaries for DEI staff. It's good money if you can get it. Georgia Tech pays $6.7 million a year. These staff spend additional money running DEI programs and departments. In South Carolina, Clemson University spends $2.5 million on DEI programs, while the University of South Carolina spends $1.7 million. Oh, Nikki, did you not fix that when you were governor, Nikki? Nikki. Then there's University of Michigan, which spends $30 million a year on its diversity, equity, and inclusion team. Whatever the school, the true cost is likely much higher. And college is the ultimate racket. It really is. You know, they, they, they turn around and they keep raising prices and they know you're still going to send your kids there. So they don't care what it costs. They know that you're still, your kid's still going to get a loan and, uh, and come to that, that school. So basically what they do is they turn around and they go like, um, hey, uh, we're going we're gonna to call, uh, we're going we're gonna to say the mission is uh, $90,000 a year, 90 grand a year, all right? And um, you're going to pay that because if you don't want to come here, somebody else will. And then you turn around and go, okay. And it's the ultimate form of of the mafia, basically. Because the government turns around, because they were on it too, they go, don't worry about it, we got your back. We're going to give you a loan for that $90,000 a year. Don't worry, it's all good. So the colleges spend more money on this kind of crap, knowing that they can raise their prices and the marketplace is not going to react because it's, it's, it's not a real marketplace. The government, whatever the cost is, will make sure there are loans to pay for it. And then when those loans come due, they're going to turn around and go, you know what, on second thought, we think it's better if you don't have to pay these loans. I mean, after all, as long as you vote Democrat, as long as you're a good Democrat little voter, we're going to make you okay. Schools often report salaries uh, for DEI staff, but not the cost of the projects they run or vice versa. Regardless, DEI administrators are extremely well paid. Virginia's top diversity official makes $391,000 a year. Well, at UVA... The head DEI honcho makes $375,000. Does that not want to make you bury your head in snow? Virginia Tech's top diversity officer makes $391,000. University of Virginia's head DEI honcho makes nearly $375,000. I had to read it again just to make sure I wasn't wrong. From Alabama to Kentucky to Louisiana to Ohio to Utah and beyond, DEI administrators routinely make more than $200,000. The National Association of Diversity Officers in Higher Education brags that 84% of DEI officials make at least 100 grand, while more than a third are pulling in $200,000 plus. What the hell are we doing wrong? Not that I could get that job as a white dude, but you know what I mean. 
A 2021 survey found the average public university employs 45 DEI staff. That fact alone indicates such schools are likely spending millions of dollars a year on politicized personnel. So at the same time, they go, oh, college should be freed. At the same time, they go, oh, you shouldn't have any student loan debt. The salary of Virginia Tech's top diversity official alone would fund nearly 13 full-ride scholarships based on in-state tuition rates. At Utah State University, getting rid of the DEI czar would pay for 14 and a half full rides. Utah? Why does Utah have a DEI? Come on. Come on, man. If the salaries and funding for all DEI staff and programs at all public universities were spent on scholarships, huge numbers of students could benefit. At the University of Michigan, 241 DEI staff are hawking resources that could pay the way for more than 1,700 students. With so much money at stake, universities could focus on giving more students a better education at an affordable price, but they like DEI. You know why they like DEI so much? You know why? They like it because it's the indoctrination that they all want. They love it. And they love it because... um, in addition to brainwashing and indoctrinating your children, obviously, uh, it also teaches them that America is a racist place. America is a horrible place. America is a place where uh, everybody should atone. Let me give you an example. Over at uh, the hideous place of view, and I'm not, I'm not going to hurt you with, with a lot of audio from, from this. I'm, I'm not going to hurt you. But there's a woman on the view named Sarah Haynes. Sarah Haynes was having this little chit chat. And says, and she's white, obviously. It's important to make white kids feel bad in history class. It's important to make them feel bad in history class. Take a listen. Because what is supposed to be the very foundation of this country is that we are all equal. But what happens is when you've had privilege for so long, equality feels a lot like oppression. What the hell? What does that even mean? What does that even mean? You've had privilege for so long. What? what, I I don't even. What? 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 what, Huh? How about the privilege of making millions of dollars being a host on The View? How about that privilege? How about View host salary privilege? I think that's a nice privilege. Or how about the privilege of being a DEI officer at one of these schools around America? How about that privilege? Where you are privileged enough to be able to make hundreds of thousands of dollars of, a, a year telling everybody America is a racist, horrible place. And you're most likely a person of color and most likely a person who would qualify under all the DEI initiatives. So you sit there and make hundreds of thousands of dollars telling everybody what a horrible place America is. Let's keep going here. Yes, clap away, Seals. There's more to it than that. Look, I think what it is is that um, black history and other things, banning books, has been weaponized for political purposes to drive people to the polls. There are no book bans. My poor little white kid is feeling bad because he's learning about slavery. That's ridiculous. Learning about history should not make anybody feel bad. We learn about history. Oh, it should make you feel bad. No, but it's important that it makes you feel bad. I don't think it should make you feel bad. Whoa, 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 whoa. It should make you feel bad. Only if you're a Democrat. They were the party of slavery. And all five of these idiots on The View, they're all Democrats. Even Elisa Farah, whatever her name is, who was a Republican, Democrat. Come on. So they're all Democrats. How about you say you should feel bad if you're Democrats? The Democrat Party is a party of slavery. You should feel bad. They won't say that, though, of course. So Sarah Haynes, with her white guilt, turns around and goes, no, it should make you feel bad. Why? None of the people learning about history did anything wrong. Why should my, why should my kids feel bad? They didn't do anything. 
Why, why should my kids feel guilty for something they didn't do? They, my kids didn't own slaves. My kids did. Uh, my, first of all, my, 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 my children had nothing to do with any of this. Why should they feel bad learning about the history of America? Oh, because they should, because that's the only way to perpetuate the narrative that America is a uh, place that's horrible, built on white supremacy, and we must achieve equity and knock down privilege by destroying capitalism and having a socialist utopia. That's why they have to feel bad. I don't think a a white child uh, that's had nothing to do with slavery should feel bad about slavery. I think we need to learn history so that we don't repeat the same mistakes about history. And I, you know, today is... um, Today is, is MLK Day, and what's happening around this country with black history, with banning books, is absolutely insane. And you've got, in the Republican primary right now, you've got Ron DeSantis... Nobody who, is banning books. Go ahead. ...to argue there is a positive side to slavery. You've yep. got Nikki Haley, who can't even bring herself to utter the word slavery as the cause of the Civil War. She has black and you've friends. got... Um, uh, Donald Trump, uh-huh. who wants to give Abraham Lincoln advice. You know, it's it's very it's very it's very difficult to, to to listen to the cackling hens, but you get the point, right? I mean, you get the point. Why you have to hoist that guilt upon everybody? It is to perpetuate the narrative. Far left organizations will train teachers to incorporate Palestinian narratives into the classroom, according to the to the Daily Wire. A pro-Palestinian group that previously downplayed Hamas's October 7th terrorist attacks against Israel will be training teachers in Oakland, California on Saturday to incorporate Palestinian history, narratives, and culture into K-12 classrooms. According to a flyer shared by the Daily Wire by Parents Defending Education, the Middle East Children's Alliance will be holding a Saturday training called Palestine in Our Classrooms, teaching to the moment 75 years of resistance, resilience, and samud. They have come under scrutiny for its response to the October 7th terrorist attacks and ties to the Democrat Socialists of America. And the training is only 25 bucks. It's not too bad. You know, I mean, that's something that even even on a teacher's salary, you could probably swing, right? Now, a watchdog group is now demanding that Johns Hopkins eliminate the DEI programs that called all white people privilege. You remember that when that, that, that Johns Hopkins medical person came out and said, what is privilege? It's basically anything. She just listed everything except for if you're like a black woman, basically, a black gay woman, basically. Well, a healthcare watchdog group is demanding that Johns Hopkins uh, eliminate its diversity, equity, and inclusion program after its boss created a toxic culture by declaring all white people Christians and men as privileged. Do No Harm condemned the elite institution's empathy apology after Dr. Sharita Hill-Golden, chief diversity officer for the hospital system, sent a staff-wide memo last week defining privilege as a set of unearned benefits given to people who are in specific social groups. Do No Harm said Johns Hopkins needs to completely eliminate this entire thing. I agree. And think of all the money they could save from this. They have created a toxic culture rooted in a DEI ideology that demonizes and indoctrinates the very students they're tasked with training to become the next generation of medical professionals. Racism is still racism when a DEI officer says it. Last week, she put out her statement on privilege, and she says... Privilege operates on personal, interpersonal, cultural, and institutional levels. White people, able-bodied people, heterosexual, cisgender people, males, Christians, middle or owning class people, middle-aged people, English-speaking people, were among the privileged social groups listed in the letter. 
basically everybody. White people, able-bodied people, heterosexual, cisgender people, males, Christians, middle-earning class people, middle-aged people, English-speaking people. Privilege is characteristically invisible to people who have it. What about if you're making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, like Dr. Sharita Hill-Golden, to put out this kind of nonsense? Do you think maybe to yourself, I don't know, maybe that's privilege? I'm just throwing it out there. What do I know? I'm just throwing it out there. I'm just saying maybe that's privilege. Maybe perhaps just a little bit of privilege. A little. You know, because at the end of the day, when you think about it, that's a whole lot of cash to just lecture people about how much privilege they have. That seems to me like a lot of privilege. And that money gets you some privilege. You know what I mean? (laughs) Don't forget, uh, February 7th is our event with Terry Hayes. International best-selling author Terry Hayes, The Year of the Locust. Get your tickets today by going to... 1210wphd.com and get your tickets. Please do not wait. I want you, I want to see you there for that. He'll sign your book. We'll have a wonderful night together, a lot of fun. And don't forget as well on Thursday, February 1st, Parks Casino for another of Joe Conklin's comedy nights with my buddy Joe Conklin, some great comedians. 20 bucks gets you your ticket, your first drink for free, and um, a lot of fun, a lot of laughs. That's at 8 o'clock. ParksCasino.com slash comedy gambling prom call 1 800 Gambler. So two great events. And they're both quite affordable. Comedy Night and then our book event with Terry Hayes. I'm really excited for Terry Hayes, too, because as I've been reading his book, to understand what these um, denied access, denied area access CIAs go through and the threat of Iran and still radical fundam- radical Islamic terrorism, it's still out there. It's, it has not gone away. And he brings it all home in such a gripping way. And The Year of the Pilgrim was a phenomenal book, or I Am Pilgrim, but at, but The Year of the Locust, I mean, it's, it's just, I can't put it down. I love it. And you're going to love chatting with him. He's got a, a lot to say. I mean, all the movies he worked on. So we'll have a great night, and I want you to do that, 1210wphd.com. And get your tickets today. Now, listen, Dr. Mike Venaria is my friend and my dentist. Bridget went to see him just this week. I went to see him last week. Was it a week ago today? I was slurring my words. I will be in about oh, an hour. Anyway, just kidding. Uh, Dr. Mike's a great guy. And you deserve a beautiful smile. You deserve the smile of your life. And that's what you'll get with Dr. Mike Venaria. With two offices to serve you in Cinnamonson and Woodbury, reach out to Dr. Mike today. Just go to VenariaDental.com. V-A-N-A-R-I-A, VenariaDental.com. He's my dentist. He's my friend. And he is the master of dental implants. So what are you waiting for? If you've had an estimate for complicated dental implants before, please reach out to Dr. Mike today for a second opinion. And when it comes to your smile, remember it's worth it because every single person sees your smile. So it's worth it for you to have a beautiful smile. And I want you to have a beautiful smile. And I trust him. My whole family goes to him. Pediatric General Cosmetic Dentistry. It's all there with my buddy, Dr. Mike Venaria. VenariaDental.com. V-A-N-A-R-I-A. VenariaDental.com. Rich Zioli, weekday afternoons, 3 to 7. Talk Radio 1210. WPHT. And on the free Odyssey app. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod. There is another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.